It's uh, great to, to see so many uh, faces this morning that I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, some of you I have seen on Zoom, but not in person, and in other cases, uh, not seen at all. So it's, uh, it's great to see you again um, after such a long time. Today we're going to be um, talking about um, the greatest commandment. This is uh, taken from uh, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. It's a continuation of our series through the book of Matthew. And uh, we've been going through Matthew I, uh, for quite a while now. I, I didn't go back and check to see when we started, but we've gone very slowly. We haven't tried to hurry. Um, and uh, in this particular passage, um, Jesus is asked the question, um, what the most important commandment of God is? And maybe as a, a point of reflection, if somebody asked you that question, what would you say? You may have already looked at the passage, and you may already know the answer, <laughs> but if you, if you haven't, uh, what would you say the answer to that question is? And even more importantly, even if you know the answer to that question, the question is, would you be able to tell that you believe that from the words that you say and the actions you take? Or is it just something that stays up here and doesn't make itself known in how you, what you say and what you do? If you ask people around you what the most important thing in your life was, if people around me ask in my office, for example, or at church, what's the most important thing in Mike's life, what would they say? If you asked your spouse, if you asked your children, what would they say the most important thing in your life is? Is it obeying God? Or would it be pleasing yourself? I think if we are honest with ourselves, oftentimes that's the case. We're most interested, what's most important to us is doing what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. So let's first of all read this uh, short passage, and then we'll dive into it. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And then Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's not a long passage, but we're going to dive into it and try to understand what it really means in our lives today. Let's pray. Father, as we unpack this, these verses from the book of Matthew, as we unpack Jesus' words, I pray that you would help us all to better understand what Jesus said, and not only understand what Jesus said, but understand and, and put it into practice in our lives. I pray these things in your son's name, and for his sake, amen. Now, before we look at the passage itself, I think it's important that you understand the context 
for this particular passage. Um, it's easy to kind of lose track. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees because we, we go week after week, and I know some of us travel, and we're going here and there, and some of us, our memories aren't so good, so we may forget what we talked about the week before. But let me just help you understand a little bit about the, about the context, the setting for this. First of all, the question is where this occurred. This particular passage that we're reading, this interaction between the, the religious leaders and Jesus took place inside the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, and it's taking place during the week between Palm Sunday, which we just celebrated, and Jesus' crucifixion. What had happened prior to this was that several weeks prior, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. This occurred in Bethany at the home of where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived. You may recall that passage, Jesus died, and Jesus delayed a little bit, and then he went and he actually raised him, and Jesus came out of the tomb alive. Now, Bethany was only about three kilometers, or I guess two miles, from Jerusalem. So what happened is most of Jesus' ministry was up north in Galilee. But this was very close to Jerusalem, and the word spread very, very fast. And the religious leaders started getting worried. They said, I think it was a high priest that we read in John, met up with the other religious leaders, and he said, we got to stop this. If we, don't, if we don't stop this, we're going to lose our nation. In other words, they're going to lose their power, their position. So what they decided to do was Jesus, the, the high priest said, it's better for one person to die than for the whole nation to perish. And at that point in time, they decided that Jesus needed to be put to death. They didn't know how they were going to do it, but they decided he needed to die. And in fact, later in John, the next chapter, you'll read that they decided to put Lazarus to death, too. They, tried, they were going to plan to kill Lazarus because they said, we've got we to destroy the evidence here. <laughs> Everybody knows that Jesus, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We've got to get rid of him, and we've got to get rid of Lazarus. These were very evil people. And what happened is, when the word started to spread, everybody started going to Bethany and trying to... Um, talk to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and is it true what we heard? Were you, Lazarus, were you indeed dead and Jesus raised you from the dead? What happened? Jesus was becoming very popular. Many people wanted to go and talk to him while he was in Bethany. So it says that what Jesus did is he, he left Bethany and went to Ephraim because he knew that the religious leaders were trying to kill him. So Bethany was, was a ways away from, from I mean, uh, Ephraim was a ways away from, from uh, Bethany. But either on Friday or Saturday, right before Palm Sunday, Jesus came back to Bethany, and he used that as his base <laughs> during the Passover week. First thing he did is on Sunday, we read Palm Sunday, he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. People greeted him with palm branches. And the reason he was so popular, the reason these people preached, I mean, they, they, they praised him as they had, is they recognized finally that he was the Messiah. 
by the miracles he had done, and finally by the resurrection that he had, had, uh, that had occurred when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was one of the reasons he was so popular, why so many people came out to meet him on that Palm Sunday. It says he went into the city, he went into the temple here, looked around, and then traveled back to Bethany to sleep at night. And he did that during the Passover week. He stayed and slept at Bethany, and he would come into Jerusalem every morning. The next day on Monday, you may recall, that he came into the temple, and he saw all these people that were money changers, that were selling animals. He overturned the tables. And he went back to Bethany at night. The next morning, Tuesday morning, he came back again to Jerusalem. And by that time, the religious leaders were very upset. They questioned him. They said, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority to come in and do what you did in the temple that you did? And then what happened is after he did these things, he started to tell parables. He answered, started, he told three parables that we've gone through recently. The first parable was about the two sons. Second parable was about the tenants in the vineyard. And the third one was about the parable of the wedding banquet. All three of these parables were indirectly criticisms of the religious leaders. He had gone into the hornet's nest. (laughs) He went into the place that was the headquarters for the people that were trying to kill him. And he was not directly, but indirectly, talking about what they had done. In the parable of the two sons, you may remember, is talking about the father that had leased out his vineyard to some tenants. And what happened? He sent servants to collect the rent, and they beat up, and they even killed some of the servants. And then it says that the landlord sent his own son to collect rent. And what happened? They killed him too. Again, this was a way of, of indirectly talking about what the Jewish leaders were planning to do to Jesus. The second parable was, I mean, the, that was actually the second parable, sorry. The first parable was the, the parable of the two sons. It's talking about one son that said that he would do um, and, and, and obey the father and work in the vineyard. And then the other son said he wouldn't but actually did, in the end, go work in the vineyard. He said, which of those two sons obeyed the father? Of course, it was the second one. Even though he initially said he wouldn't, he did. Talking about the religious leaders who were saying that they would obey God, but actually hadn't done so. It was a condemnation of them. And then the third parable was the parable of the wedding banquet. It says that the, um, the father had prepared a wedding banquet for his son, He sent out his servants to invite the guests, and all the guests were too busy to come. And what happened is it says that he sent his servants, they beat the servants up, and they eventually killed the servants. Again, it was a condemnation of the religious leaders that were rejecting Jesus and those that had followed him. So after these three parables, where Jesus is indirectly criticizing the religious leaders, 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees started to ask questions. They were hoping to trap him, and they took turns asking questions and trying to trick him or trap him so that he would say something and they could, they could attack him. We read in uh, Matthew 22, 34 through 35, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. So this has occurred right after. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians got together <laughs> and asked him about paying tax. He says, is it okay? Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? These were two enemies, the Herodians and the Pharisees, and yet they got together because they had a common enemy, and that was Jesus. And they were hoping that by asking that question, Jesus would have to say either you should obey Caesar or you should obey the religious leaders. And either way, he was in trouble. And he answered in a way that was brilliant. <laughs> they couldn't attack him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians kept silent. The next thing was the Sadducees. <laughs> it was their turn to attack Jesus. <laughs> now, the Sadducees were enemies of the Pharisees. But you see, these two people had the common enemy of, of Jesus. And the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, tried to trick him, and they said, hey, if, there, if a man has, um, if there are five sons, and the first son is married to a wife, and then he dies, and then his brother marries the wife, and then he dies, and all the way down to the seven sons, Jesus was asked, who in the resurrection will be this woman's husband? And then Jesus corrected them and said, there's no marriage in heaven. And it shut up the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees, okay, it's now their turn again. <laughs> the, Sadducees, the Pharisees had a turn, they failed. The Sadducees had a turn, they failed. And now the Pharisees wanted, again, another shot at Jesus. They got together, and there is a one man. It says he was the uh, expert in the law. Now, an expert in the law, and I think in some translations it says lawyer. Um, I think we all know lawyers. Sometimes we wish we didn't. My brother and his sister, his, his wife rather, my sister-in-law, are both lawyers. I have a lot of lawyers' jokes. But this is not the kind of lawyer that you're thinking of probably. This is uh, somebody that knew the, the law of God, not the law of the Republic of Indonesia or whatever. It's the law of God. And these were people, they were, I think, sometimes called scribes, sometimes teachers of the law. They were people that knew the law backwards and forwards. And I guess one of the Pharisees went, was willing to step forward and try to trick up and trap Jesus by asking him a question. In fact, if you look at the reason of why the question was asked, it said that they were testing him. Um, I've, I've been a little puzzled, to be honest, about it seems like a fairly simple question that Jesus would be able to give a fairly simple answer to. So I'm not sure in which way that they were trying to test him. But it says that was their intent. That was the purpose of the question. They were trying to find a way to discredit Jesus. Okay? And then Jesus was asked by this lawyer this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Now, the Jewish people would have known that there are many, many of God's commands. Many, many. But he's being asked, which of those commands that 
God has commanded us, the Jews, to do is the most important of all the commands. And this is Jesus' answer. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. You'll see in the, I've put Deuteronomy 6 up here. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he's basically quoting Deuteronomy 6, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In fact, uh, if you look at the parallel passage in the book of of Mark, it actually says that Jesus quoted the whole passage. um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and soul. Now, I, I, to understand the context of this, this is right before the Jewish people, after 400 years in Egypt, were about to go into the Promised Land. And at this point, this was the beginning of a long passage where God gave many, many, many commands to the Jewish people about what they were to do when they went into the Promised Land. Um, I used to get a little bit caught up in the distinctions between heart and mind and soul and strength. Um, If you go back to the passage that we just looked at a second ago, you'll notice that um, what Jesus says in in Matthew, what's recorded there, is you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. I use a sign language for this. The heart, the soul, the mind. Okay? And then in... In the other passage in Deuteronomy, it says this. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So the, the first one leaves out uh, um, your strength. The second one leaves out your mind. And in fact, if you look at the parallel passage in, in Mark, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I think sometimes we get a little bit, I used to get a little distracted by what are the differences between those. And I think the, the part of the difference was the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Jesus taught and spoke in Aramaic, which is another language. This passage in Matthew was written in Greek. So I think you have language differences where you go from one language to the other. Certain words didn't completely capture. But I think the point is, Jesus is saying we need to love the Lord our God, with our full, whole being, everything in us, every part of us, our physical being, our immaterial being, we need to love God. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, what's interesting to me is I would have thought Jesus would have just stopped there. I think if you're ever being questioned by a lawyer, the advice you're given is don't say more than you need to say. <laughs> if you're testifying in court, which effectively Jesus was doing, just answer the question and that's it. <laughs> because you're likely to get yourself in trouble by <laughs> continuing to talk. So it's a little surprising that Jesus not only answers their question, but he continues on. And by the way, the second commandment is this. He says, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that is actually in the Old Testament as well, 
But what's interesting, and it's actually in a very obscure passage in the book of Leviticus. It wasn't highlighted like the first verses we read. And that whole passage says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, you may ask, and I ask myself, why would Jesus talk about this? Why is this important? Why did he mention this verse? I think it may have been an indirect condemnation of, again, the religious leaders. Because the experts in the law would have known this verse very, very well. And it specifically says that God's command is that they were not to seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite. And that's exactly what they were doing with Jesus. They were not only bearing a grudge, they were planning to kill him because of that grudge. So I think by quoting this verse, I think it may have made the people that were asking the questions a little bit embarrassed, and it may have been, made them feel a little bit guilty about what they were planning to do to Jesus. And in fact, it says that after this particular passage, they stopped asking Jesus any more questions because they realized that they would get in trouble. They, they weren't able to trap him as they had hoped they would be able to trap him. Now, if we continue on with the passage, the last verse says, Jesus summarizes by saying, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay? There's many, many commandments in the law. Many, many, many. But he's saying, basically, if you look at the two commandments I gave you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, all the other commandments are subsets of those two commandments. Now, in case you don't know what he's referring to when he says the law and the prophets, I'd like to show you the, the table of contents, or contents, I should say, in the Jewish Bible. If you look at the Jewish Bible, which I have a copy of here, this is, I, I bought a Jewish Bible when I was in, in Dallas. I doubt you'll be able to buy one in Jakarta. <laughs> but uh, in, in, uh, I went to the bookstore, and um, the Jewish Bible is divided into three parts. It's the law, which is the Torah, or Muslims would say the Torah. This next section is the uh, Nevi'im, which is translated into English as the Prophets. And the Ketavim, which is the writings. Okay. What's, what's interesting is the Jewish Bible, if you buy it in the bookstore today, it's exactly the same as our Old Testament. It has 39 books, just like our Old Testament. Um, the books are not in the same order. Uh, the first five books obviously are. I think the first, maybe the first seven or, or nine books are. Uh, but Ruth, beginning at Ruth, some of the books are in a different place, but they're the same books. So it's, if you ever have a, a conversation with somebody from a Jewish background, you can bring them to the Old Testament and maybe point out some things that will lead them to Yeshua, the Messiah. 
Also for the for those that are um, Muslim, if you, in the Al Quran, it says Moses gave us the Torah. It talks about David gave us the Zabur, which is the Psalms, which was the first book in the third section. So we have a lot in common. We're both with Jews and even Muslims refer back to these books. In fact, uh, Jesus referred to these three sections when, um, when he was uh, on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. It says that he was talking to the disciples, and he said he was talking about the things that were mentioned about him as the Messiah in the law, in the prophets, and the Psalms, which are the three sections of, of our Old Testament. So basically what Jesus is saying to us is, Everything in the Old Testament, our Old Testament, can be summarized in those two passages. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I thought I would just uh, demonstrate that by looking at Ten Commandments, which we call the Ten Commandments, which are very famous. How, how indeed are the commandments in the Old Testament a reflection of those two commandments? So let's look at the Ten Commandments. There's Ten Commandments, as, as we well know. The first is loving God. It says uh, we are to have no other gods, make no images and worship them. Uh, we are to not misuse God's name, and we are to observe the Sabbath. Then there's also th- four or six others. It says honor your mother and your father, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Don't covet. Is Jesus right when he says that these can be summarized in love God and love your neighbor? I think he is. I think if we truly love God and love our neighbor, we're going to give God and our neighbor what is rightfully theirs. We're going to give God the, the praise and the honor that he deserves. We're going to give people what they deserve. As a child, we should honor our mother and father. That's what our parents deserve. But we also are not to take for ourselves what belongs to somebody else. We're not to praise other gods. That doesn't belong to other gods, idols. It belongs to God alone. We're taking something that he deserves and we're taking it away from him and giving it to somebody else. Likewise, with murder, you're taking the life of someone else that doesn't belong to you. That's theirs. Committing adultery, you're taking someone's spouse or present spouse or future spouse, taking what belongs to their spouse away from them. Or you're taking away what your own spouse deserves, which is to have your soul fidelity. You're not giving your wife or your husband what they deserve by committing adultery. Don't steal. Obviously, you're taking what doesn't belong to you. You're not loving the person that you're stealing from. 
giving false testimony. Again, you're not loving the person that you're giving false testimony against, are you? Or coveting. Coveting your neighbor's wife, coveting your neighbor's possessions. You're, t- you're, you're desiring something that someone else has that you want for yourself. And coveting isn't necessarily an action, is it? It's, a, it's an idea. It's, a, it's an attitude. It's something that is, is in our mind. And I think there were a lot of Jewish people at that time that felt that they had done these things. And they were very proud. Look, I've obeyed all of God's commands. And I think Jesus addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, look, if you even hate somebody, it's as good as murdering. If you have lust in your eyes, it's as good as committing adultery. Which brings me to my next point, is that although we are talking about God's commands, I don't want you to misunderstand to think that you have the ability to fully obey God's commands and somehow earn God's um, favor by not being faced with judgment on the day of judgment. Or that you think because you do good things and I don't, you don't do bad things, somehow you're going to go to heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. There are commands that we're to obey, that's true, but we also shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that we can somehow earn God's favor and have a right to spend eternity with him just because we obey, because we can't obey fully. Romans 3.20 says this. It says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. If I can have the slide up, please. Thanks. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We are to obey the law. It's a commandment. It isn't a suggestion. It's a commandment. But don't think that you're going to be able to completely obey it and you deserve to spend eternity with Christ. and You don't deserve to be punished for your disobedience. We do. But that doesn't mean we don't try to obey it. <laughs> we should. It is a commandment. What we hopefully will happen is we recognize our sin, and if you haven't done that this morning, I hope you do. As you look at the commands that, that um, are in the Old Testament, if you look at the New Testament over and over again, Jesus tries to help people get to the point where they realize these are God's commands and that they fall short of those commands. They sin. They disobey God. They need to repent, ask for God's mercy through the death of Jesus, who paid the penalty for that sin that we've committed. Nonetheless, for those of us that are already believers, they are commands. The commands aren't given just so we become knowledgeable about our sin. That's part of it. But the commands are there for us to obey. And we need to take them seriously. Now, I also wanted to point out Another command, a third command that Jesus gave. He didn't give it when he was speaking to the lawyer. But he spoke it two days later to his disciples. And he says, I've got a third command. I've got a new command for you. What is that command? I used to get it confused with the second command, but I hope to 
make sure that you understand that it's different than the second commandment that we just read. This is what the, Jesus said. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is different than the second commandment, which I put on the right side of the screen. You see the difference? One of the differences is he's talking to his disciples. By this time, this is at the Last Supper. Jesus has washed the feet of, of the disciples. Judas has left. So there's 11 disciples left. And he says, I want you, 11, to love one another as I have loved you. It would be fresh on their mind that their master had just washed their feet. But he was about to die <laughs> for them and for us as we remember this morning in the Lord's Supper. Love one another. He's not talking about your neighbor. The neighbor could be anybody. The neighbor, as, as Jesus told in another parable, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus was trying to communicate to the people that he was talking with that a neighbor can even be somebody that would be your natural enemy. We should love them, even the natural enemies. But when Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, love one another, he's talking about the love that we should have for other of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the people within the body of Christ. There's a different kind of love we're to have for each other, those of us that are followers of Christ. We're to love our neighbor, yes, but we're also to love one another in a way that's even more deep, in a way which is even more serious than the love we have for our neighbor. How do we love each other? And how is that different than the way we love our neighbors? If you look here, if you go look at the passage again, it says, a new command I give you, you love one another as I have loved you. That's how we're to love each other, just like Jesus loved us. Not as we love ourselves, but as Jesus loved us. I did this little uh, graphic um, to, to kind of just make sure that visually I could communicate what I was trying to say here. And on the left-hand side is, is the way that Jesus answered the question to the attorney, the lawyer, expert in the law. He said, first of all, the most greatest commandment is to love God, and then, secondly, to love your neighbor. I think what Jesus is saying two days later to his disciples is that we're to have a love for the other uh, uh, disciples, the other brothers and sisters in Christ, which is a love that's deeper than just for our neighbors. Not as much as our love for God, but as a Christian, that should be the way we look at life. Our love for God, number one. Our love for each other, number two. And then finally, our love for our neighbor. Those are all important. But our love for each other should be more than the love that we would have for a neighbor. And if I look at 1 John, the Apostle John captures this quite well. He says this, 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He says, as a brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be willing to even die for each other. That's, that's quite severe. <laughs> you don't die for a neighbor, <laughs> but it says we have a responsibility to do as Jesus did and be willing to die even for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And from that passage, he gives an application. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action, actions and in truth. That's the kind of love that we need to have for each other. It's not in the passage that we just read, but I wanted to differentiate this kind of love that we are to have for each other from the kinds of love that Jesus was talking about. Do we really, are we really willing to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or not? Or is the, the money we have, the time that we have, the energy we have just devoted to our own desires? Or is it committed and devoted to God and what he wants us to do with the money we have? the time we have, the energy we have. It's easy for us to just say, yeah, 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 I do that, I do that. But do you really? If I looked at your checkbook, <laughs> for example, and I looked at how you spent your money, what would it tell me about what your priorities are? If I look at how you spent your time, if I looked at your schedule, to what extent are you making sacrifices for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you really love your brothers and sisters in Christ as we're to do? I'm afraid many of us would, are probably feeling very guilty right now <laughs> about the way that we spend what God has given to us. Finally, I wanted to have one uh, final tie-in. We talked about the great commandment. You've heard of also the great Commission, right? <laughs> I'm sure you've all heard of the Great Commission. How do the two relate to each other? Look at the Great Commission. Now, we'll read these um, later on in the book of Matthew, but after Jesus' resurrection, he brings his 11 disciples together. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He tells them to do two things, to make disciples. One is uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's bringing them into the faith. But the second thing we're to do is teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Okay, As we make disciples, and it may be people you know, it may be your own children, because hopefully as a parent, if you're a parent, you're mentoring your children and bringing them up so that they can become mature. Somebody says that you know baptizing them is like an obstetrician and Teaching them to obey is like being a pediatrician. <laughs> An obstetrician delivers babies. <laughs> That's part of our job in raising children as parents, right? But the second part of that is, is raising them up into um, children and young men and women. And, and the way to do that is says teaching them to do what? To obey everything I've commanded you. If we are doing our job 
the people that we have mentored and discipled should walk away understanding that the two most important commands that they're to obey, to love God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and secondly, to love their neighbor as themselves. And for fellow believers, they're to love them as Jesus loved them. In closing, I, I have some questions for you to ponder. For those that may not be followers of Christ, or may think that they're followers of Christ, but really aren't, the first question is, am I relying on God, obedience to God's commandments to save me from his punishment on the day of judgment? A lot of people I know in the U.S. grow up thinking that they're Christians because that they're in America. <laughs> Um, but may not really understand what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Yes, we have commands that Jesus says that we're to obey, and all those commands in the Old Testament can be summarized in those two, loving God, loving your neighbor. That's true. But the fact is nobody can fully obey those commands. And if you can't obey those commands, and you can't, you're deserving of God's eternal punishment. You're not going to go to heaven by being a good boy and girl, or mother and father. You're going to fail. So I don't want you to think, in the midst of talking about these things, <laughs> that you can somehow earn your own salvation. You can't. On the other hand, I think if you're a follower of Christ, don't just think that the commands are there so you can recognize your sin and you don't really need to obey them because I realize I'm a sinner. <laughs> That's what I think a lot of people do, evangelicals. They recognize that the law is there to convince us and convict us of sin, but not necessarily desiring to be obedient to God's commands. And God has commanded us. And if you look at our church mission statement, you'll see it talks about Obedience. We have an obligation to obey God's commands. So as a disciple of Jesus, do I truly obey the commands to love God, fellow believers, and my neighbors? Do I truly obey? In fact, do I even want to know what the commands are? If you really want to obey God's commands, your desire is going to be to know what they are, which means understanding what the Bible teaches. And then finally, am I teaching and training others to love God, fellow believers, and their neighbors, as the Great Commission says that we should? It's just not Jesus that should be explaining these great commands to the people that ask. It should be us as well. We have a responsibility to make disciples and to make sure that people understand. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We desire to love you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, our whole beings. And we desire to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we even recognize also that your son commanded us that we love each other as he loved us. 
and was, gave his life for us. Father, I pray that for each of us, however, these aren't just words that we say and walk away and act differently. Or thoughts that we have and we walk away and convince ourselves that we are doing well when we really aren't. I pray that you'd help us understand and practice whether we do indeed love you and others as we should. I pray that this, uh, this body, this church, be a church known for the love it has for you and the love we have for each other and the love we have for those around us that aren't believers. Help us be a church that's known as a loving church. And by doing so, that people would recognize who you are and who your son is. In your son's name we pray and for his kingdom. Amen.